Hi folks, welcome back for another video. I showed you a tweet uh, just a few seconds ago that I sent out over a year ago as of this recording uh, when I was thinking back on uh, the best books that I had read in the year 2017. And so I posted that tweet in January of 2018 and now it is the very beginning of February 2019. And I always intended to go back and write up a blog post or something on those books, just little blurbs on them to tell you why I thought they were the best books that I read that year. And I never had the chance to actually do that. And so I've been trying to think about uh, doing that again, but haven't had the chance. So I figured why not just make a video and talk about why I picked those books for the best books that I read in 2017. Now on the tweet, you notice that I put in a little proviso that uh, these are the best books I read other than the one that I wrote. Here's the one that I wrote for anybody who uh, might not know, Our God Loves Justice on Helmut Goldwitzer. So uh, feel free to check that out. Uh, that's the best book that I read in 2017. But aside from that one, what were my top five? And I listed them in, I believe, the order that I read them and not in any particular order other than that. And this was the first one on the list. Buddhism in China. So I get to teach a class on Chinese religious traditions, and I picked this book up just to give myself a better grounding in Buddhism in China, Chinese Buddhism, Chan Buddhism. Um, I spent previously a lot more time on Taoism and Confucianism than kind of native uh, Chinese traditions, and I wanted to round that out with the third of the three teachings uh, and get into Buddhism a bit more. And this book, I feel like looking back at it now, I need to go read it again because I've been realizing just how much of it I did not retain. It is just full of incredible amounts of detail and very specific uh, information on the different uh, teachings that arise at the different time periods and puts them in social contexts. Uh, who are the different rulers who are functioning at the time? Just a wealth of amazing material. Um, just a couple things that I really enjoyed from it. There's a section on the yearly festivals. Um, there's a section uh, explaining why in the Chinese tradition you get the laughing Buddha or the fat Buddha image, uh, as opposed to uh, a more traditionally ascetic uh, physiology uh, for the Buddha. So that's great. And it basically boils down to uh, this represents success in Chinese culture in all these different symbolic ways. Um, Another thing that I thought was really interesting was the discussion of uh, landscape painting and how Buddhism influenced landscape painting in China. Uh, so you get lots of those cultural tie-ins as well. And then, of course, uh, if you know me, you would know that I found a discussion very interesting on how Buddhism kind of brings something like spiritual finance capitalism uh, to China, where people are making uh, donations to different monasteries, and this is accruing kind of spiritual interest for them, karmic interest for them, uh, as it's there in the monastery, and the monks are putting that money to work. So uh, lots of really fascinating stuff in that book. I highly recommend it if you're interested in getting into Chinese Buddhism. So that was the first one on my list. Here's the second one. James Cone, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Um, I read Cone uh, beginning in graduate school. I don't think I read him during my undergraduate in Bible and theology, but in graduate school, and I've just kind of been picking away at his uh, various writings ever since then. And this is kind of a um, summative work from him that he wrote toward the end of his life, and it encapsulates a number of the themes that you get in uh, his other writings and kind of puts a fine point on them. One thing that I just wanted to highlight for you is on page 158 and 159, 
just to give you a, a taste for what Cohn is up to here, he says, the lynching tree is the cross in America. When American Christians realize that they can meet Jesus only in the crucified bodies in our midst, they will encounter the real scandal of the cross. One must suppose that in order to feel comfortable in the Christian faith, whites needed theologians to interpret the gospel in a way that would not require them to acknowledge white supremacy as America's great sin. So, uh, if you haven't encountered Cone before, I highly recommend Cross and the Lynching Tree. I benefited greatly from reading it. I need to read that one again, too, uh, just to let it sink in a bit more uh, deeply. But um, I'm currently planning on making another one of these videos for my top five books of 2018 list. And I believe I had another James Cone book on that list. So we'll talk more about Cone uh, on that video. Uh, the next book is this one by Paul Van Buren. This is the third volume of his three-volume work on uh, the Jewish Christian reality. And this is the Christology volume. He's looking at Jesus and um, trying to understand what Christians might want to say about Jesus, taking very, very seriously the idea that Jesus was a Jew and uh, dialoguing deeply with um, the rabbinic Jewish tradition. Lots of excellent stuff in here as well. One thing that really stuck with me uh, from this book is found uh, primarily on page 129, but you bump into it other places as well. But in this context, he's talking about Jesus's crucifixion and the fact that Jesus was crucified by an imperial power as part of that power's oppression of the Jewish people. So the Roman Empire's oppression of the Jewish people and Jesus is executed uh, under those conditions. So this is um, what Van Buren has to say. The apostolic witness to Easter is insistent that the risen one is no other than the crucified one, but crucifixion was unquestionably the official form of public execution for political crimes, primarily for rebellion against the political power of the Roman Empire. To proclaim Jesus alive, therefore, was a profoundly political act. It was to affirm God's reaffirmation of one who died in conflict with the misuse of political power, and so to affirm God's cause in the just use of human power. And so uh, if, as Van Buren asks us to reflect, uh, God's act in raising Jesus from the dead is a resistance of political, uh, the political power of empire, we have to ask, where is empire today, and how do we resist that power? We get one hint uh, further from, from Brant Van Buren. Uh, moving forward, I'm just going to hop over to page 150. And here he's talking about creation in connection with the command to love God and neighbor. The Torah spells out in considerable detail that this what this commandment entails, the love of neighbor. For it seems to be basic to God's will that his creatures, made in God's image, not only should love their creator, they should love all that God loves. And so, first of all, the human being whom they find nearest at hand. So God, as creator, loves all that God has created. And human beings created in the image of God should love the same things that God loves, which means everything that God created. So that's, I think, important perspective when we think about um, what the Christian life ought to mean for us today. So that's Van Buren. The other two volumes are interesting in this series as well. If you don't know Van Buren, uh, he was a student of Karl Barth and then uh, Ellen Cherry, uh, lately of Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, who was one of my teachers there, uh, was a student of Van Buren's. 
um, Van Buren uh, did his dissertation on uh, under Bart on John Calvin, and then um, traveled a very interesting road that got him associated with the radical death of God theologians, uh, even though he was never happy about that. And then he turned to addressing uh, Jewish uh, Christian relations in these volumes. Uh, very, very interesting volumes that I highly recommend, and I recommend Van Buren in general. All right, fourth book, Paul Tillich, The Socialist Decision. Before Paul Tillich was the writer of a systematic theology, he was writing about the socialist decision. He wrote this book very, very quickly, uh, very shortly before leaving Germany right on the eve of the National Socialist, the Nazi takeover uh, in Germany in the uh, first years of the 1930s. Um, one of the big takeaways I had from this book was Tillich's association with the Frankfurt School. Uh, you get some of the details in the introduction, and I've done some further digging uh, into that. It was really interesting to see because in this book, Tillich is arguing in some ways that socialism is never going to be successful unless you develop a kind of religious socialism. And something like he, he means something like um, a full-bodied socialist culture that's able to resist the discipline of the imagination generated by uh, capital. So. Um, he has some very interesting parallels uh, with what will later develop in the Frankfurt School uh, throughout the 20th century. He has parallels in this book, and you see some of it in germ form, perhaps from his association there. So that's a really interesting connection uh, for Tillich that you wouldn't necessarily get uh, once he moves uh, to writing the systematic theology. He, he does things much more in existentialist terms. I mean, you see uh, the same kind of patterns of thought there. Uh, later that you get in this book, uh, but it's kind of a different terminology, kind of like the Frankfurt School drops a lot of its very explicit anti-capitalist, pro-socialist rhetoric uh, when it moves to the United States. Um, so yeah, interesting parallels there. I have a lot, a lot, a lot of thoughts on this, and I actually wrote a bit about it, and um, that's kind of working its way through the press in uh, a project or two, so I don't want to get into that too much. Uh, watch for more information from me in the future about uh, when that material appears. Then, fifth and finally, this is a big book, uh, but it's a great book, The Evolution of Beauty by Richard Prum. Um, this book is all about evolutionary theory, and basically the argument that Prum wants to make is that we have to recover an aspect of Darwin's thinking which has been lost, uh, and that aspect is to pay attention to how, um, find in the page I want here, how choice and desire, really, and desire as evoked by beauty, um, and the, the linkage of those two things, how beauty evokes desire and how desire shapes the development of beauty and our perception of beauty, it's, it's really fascinating. He tracks this um, through paying attention to the evolution of, and, and uh, behavior of birds, uh, very specific birds. And, and if you're not really interested in birds, it can get a little slow going at certain parts. And I'm not particularly interested in birds, but the ideas are so fascinating that it kept me really gripped even through that very detailed uh, material. Um, but the basic idea is all of this shapes selection. It's not just a matter of adaptivity uh, or adaptivity for survival. There is an adaptivity for beauty uh, in the world as well, driven by desire, not just the demands of uh, propagating the species. And he has some interesting ways of framing uh, this whole debate. I'm just gonna read from page uh, 52 and 53 here. By claiming that evolution by mate choice was a special process with its own distinctive internal logic, Darwin fought against the powerful scientific and intellectual bias toward simplicity and unification. 
Of course, many of Darwin's Victorian antagonists were recent converts from religious monotheism to materialistic evolutionism. And just, you know, to pause, the, the idea that um, you're not going to use God as an explanation for natural processes. That's what he means by evolutionary materialism. You're not using God as a scientific ex explanation. Their holistic monotheism might have predisposed them to adopt a powerful new monoideism. They replaced a single omnipotent God with a single omnipotent idea, natural selection. Indeed, contemporary adaptionists should question why they feel it is necessary to explain all of nature with a single profound theory or process. Is the desire for scientific unification simply the ghost of monotheism lurking within contemporary scientific explanation? And so he wants to go on and push us to reconsider these things. And make the, he makes the argument that natural selection on the one hand, and sexual selection, on the other hand, are independent evolutionary mechanisms. In this framework, adaptive mate choice is a process that occurs through the interaction of sexual selection and natural selection. So complicating the picture of how it is that evolution uh, moves, uh, it's not just about the pressures of uh, adaptivity in terms of one's surrounding environment, but it's also about the pressures of adaptivity exerted by desire and beauty and the choice uh, that organisms make uh, in this reproductive process. So it's a super fascinating book with big ramifications for how we understand the world, and it's all told through an exquisite uh, sense for detail as he works through uh, the different uh, bird examples. And then he, uh, by the time he gets two thirds of the way through the books, he jumps to applying this to human evolution, how we understand uh, anthropology. So uh, I highly recommend that book. So those were my top five books of 2017. And of course, uh, don't forget this one, go buy it. Links to all the books uh, below in the description. Hit the subscribe button. I'll talk to you again sometime soon.